Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. It's your friend, Rick from Blind, and we have Josh Owen from Flourish today. Josh Owen is the CTO at Flourish. Previously, he was the CTO of Openfolio, where he developed software to help bring openness and transparency to personal investing. He joined Flourish when Stone Ridge Asset Management acquired Openfolio in 2017. For those of you that don't know, Flourish is an online platform through which investors can access financial services and products. They help registered investment advisors secure their clients' financial futures. Flourish is wholly owned by Mass Mutual and operates independently from Mass Mutual's existing wealth management and insurance businesses. Mass Mutual acquired Flourish in 2021. So thanks, Josh, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I, I, I was looking through your bio, and, and stop me if I'm wrong, but you started your career at City. How did you navigate kind of the, the business side of the role while it, as an engineer? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I, so I started at City right out of college in 2008, 2009, which obviously was a, a kind of crazy time in the financial markets and especially a, a particularly interesting time to be joining an investment bank. Um, I remember accepting my offer um, and sort of declining all of my other offers right out of school in 2008. And then two or three days later, reading the news and saying, and City announced that they were laying off 75,000 people globally. And that was a hard pill to swallow. And I remember thinking, like, did I just ruin my life? Like, what have I done? Um, and reached out to my recruiter at the time and said, hey, like, is this offer still on the table? And got the very unsatisfying answer of, at the moment, yes, your offer will be honored. Um, so I went through and you know, decided, okay, like, let's keep going with this. And we're going to you know, start in July. Hopefully this still exists. Um, but I've always, you know, City, I, City attracted me because I've always been really interested in sort of the business side of software engineering. Um, in college, I studied computer science and economics. And you know, coming out of school, I wanted to build software that built, you know, that really mattered to a business and moved the business forward. Um, so when I was looking at City, I met with a bunch of different teams and, you know, come July when I was ready to start, none of those teams actually existed anymore. So none of the teams I'd matched with were around. Um, so I was placed on a team that sort of generically needed engineers and joined a back office engineering organization in the global transaction services business, which, you know, initially I wasn't actually that excited about. Um, but once I got to know it, I actually realized it was a pretty cool opportunity. And it was a really interesting opportunity to learn a lot about a business that I didn't know anything about. You know, we were moving trillions of dollars around the world every day for the treasury departments of Fortune 500 companies, for the US military paying um, sort of service members overseas. And we had to build a new technology platform to power this that effectively was accessible everywhere on high bandwidth connections, low bandwidth connections, and would be scalable and quickly be able to be built uh, by a team of contractors. When I you know, joined this organization, like there were actually not that many uh, full-time employees left. Um, a lot of folks had been impacted by the layoff and you know, we had a team of offshore contractors that were going to you know, try to do a lot of the work that was you know, still remaining. And I was really fortunate in this role. Um, I had an absolutely great manager who um, empowered me to make a lot of decisions and take some risk and really 
let me do a role that I wasn't ready for and wasn't really qualified for, but was there to sort of help share the risk and backstop me. And, you know, there's a saying like in chaos, there's a ladder. And that really proved true in this scenario. I was able to wear a ton of hats. Um, we were building a greenfield product where I had to sort of go be the business analyst and deeply understand the problem that we're trying to solve, design a solution to scalably solve this problem, and ultimately had to build it. Um, there, there sort of wasn't any other team to go build it, so we just there were like three of us and we just did it. Um, and it was a pretty interesting. The other sort of interesting things sort or of post layoff was like there weren't that many other employees around to sign off on decisions, so. In a lot of cases, I had to sign off on things that were kind of above my pay grade, but I knew that I had my manager support to take smart risks and make good decisions, and he was there to back me up. But sometimes when you have a bad situation, you can make the best of it. So with less, with fewer people around, it seems like you were able to really take your career to that extra next level and do a lot of things maybe you would not have if things were ordinary. Absolutely. It wasn't like, there. this wasn't a cookie cutter role. This was you know, there was a lot of chaos going on and it was certainly, I took it as the opportunity to go make the best of it. And, you know, I think that that really set me up for success later in life because I had that opportunity and frankly, in a safe space because I had a great manager working with me and sort of keeping things on, keeping things on the rails and making sure that I didn't get in over my head. Um, but it was a safe opportunity to take some risks. And I think, that set me up really well for like later on being at startups where you know, risk-taking is the absolute name of the game, um, but also set me up well for when I moved on to a trading desk and had to, you know, make real-time decisions that, you know, had pretty significant magnitudes. Were you switched by the trade? Was that a Goldman you're talking about or? Yeah. Um, so I was at City. So after City, uh, or while I was at City, a friend of mine had joined uh, Goldman Sachs in the interest rates business, uh, working on a fixed income electronic trading team. And, you know, I was always really interested in the capital markets, um, studied a lot, a lot of capital markets things in school and wanted to move in that direction um, and decided to take the leap. So I moved from city to Goldman. And it was a pretty, it was a really interesting time to be in the capital market space. There were a lot more product types coming up onto electronic trading venues and a lot more things, a lot more products were trading sort of straight through electronically versus, uh, you know, a voice trade or, um, you know, more, you know, with humans involved. And I joined really in a software engineering role, um, but on the rates trading desk. And yeah, I've often said that trading, a trading desk is like the perfect finishing school. It's great after college. I, th I think that everyone should work on a desk, a trading desk, because you have to learn how to work under pressure and really focus on things that matter. The work that you're doing has, the, you have to have a sense of urgency in the work because you know, there's, you're there to make money and you can sort of tell whether or not you're doing well or doing poorly based on whether or not the desk is making money that day or losing money that day. You have to be calm in the face of chaos. And the culture there is really ruthlessly commercial. Like you are there to build the business, to grow the business, that is it. You have to have a good risk management function because you're in the business of taking risks and managing those. And you really have to have like a deep understanding of the business and what you're doing. 
um, and how the technology impacts it. And to me, that really drew me to it. And I think that there were, uh, were trading with us electronically and we would be trading uh, you know, algorithmically on the broker markets. So in this role at Goldman Sachs, were you both like an analyst and a developer or what does the title look like there? Yeah, so analyst developer was the like the formal title. Um, analyst oh. is really more like the rung on the career ladder. So at a bank, you typically start as an analyst, become an associate, become a vice president, et cetera. Um, but it really was an engineering role. I do think though that, you know, it's working like especially on a trading desk you really have to deeply understand the business there's not like there's no team of business analysts and product managers who are sort of helping you build the specs you're sitting next to the trader and you're you have to one understand the problems that they know that they need to solve and two you need to understand the problems that you think they need to solve um and it, i think it's also really a great opportunity for you to sort of make a good name for yourself. Um, I think you know, it's kind of funny. The most useful piece of software I think that I built at Goldman was this simple, like silly little checkbox that I added to an order entry screen. Um, because one night I was talking to one of our traders about the problems that they face when, you know, and I guess for a little bit of background, um, any these investment banks have global trading groups. So there's a team in London, there's a team in New York, and there's a team in Hong Kong or Tokyo usually. And you're sort of trading, like the markets are almost 24 hours, so you're sort of following the sun. And there are handoffs between New York and London, or sorry, London, New York, and then New York and Hong Kong, Tokyo. And when different, when that handoff happens, the team in London would cancel their, their sort of orders that they have in market and the team in New York would put in those orders because they're assigned with a different trader. And we realized that all of these traders you know, were spending like 15 minutes going and re-entering a ton of orders, like maybe 50, maybe 75 orders. There was some fat fingering risk where if you put an order in the wrong way, that you know, could have an adverse impact to the business. And it was kind of just a lot of like low value work. So I talked with the traders that were sitting next to me and said, Hey, like, what if we just remembered the order that you put in previously and like kept those values? And then you only have to change the things that actually change for this. So maybe you're changing the price level and like the size, but you want to put that order in. And they said, Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Why don't we just do that? And I took it upon myself, like, said, All right, let's go figure out how to do that. And stayed late one night and built it and showed it to the traders first thing in the morning. And so they said, Yeah, that's what we want. That'll make life easier. And I think. You know, the next day it was live in production and, you know, it's again, silly little checkbox, but I think it, you know, if you do the math, it saves I don't know, 45 minutes a day between New York, London, and Tokyo, 252 trading days a year, like it adds up to real time and you're able to do that. And because you just understand your users and their problems and take it upon yourself to go solve it. Well, speed is of the essence, right, Josh, when you're talking about trading, I mean, they would do everything in terms of laying cable underseas, all sorts of any way you could get that trade done quicker than the next person, right? So that's, so oh, that's a big accomplishment. And there are tons of other really interesting problems that you have to solve on the trading desk or working on low latency order execution or low latency market data processing, you know, making the JVM respond in, you know, consistently quickly um, and not worrying about getting garbage collected uh, before like a major economic event. There, there are a ton of really interesting technical problems um, and you have to solve those. But in my experience, the way to sort of like level up is to partner with people and find a way to, you know, work on things that 
matter to people because people ultimately are the ones who are going to give you sort of the next opportunity. And you know, interestingly, that actually was how I turned into my role at Openfolio. I was one of the traders that I'd worked really closely with at Goldman had left and was going to go start a startup and said, hey, come be our CTO. And it was because, I think it was because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to solve their problems. Was that a tough decision for you? Because Goldman Sachs, for people who may not be aware, is viewed as probably the preeminent investment bank. It's like the go-to, it'd be like equivalent to Google, I would imagine, right? In terms of you know their, their presence within their sector. So did you get some pushback from your family, friends, others saying, wait, it's Goldman, just stay there longer. Maybe you could be a partner there one day. Or it wasn't, it wasn't a factor. You just wanted to pursue something different and be a CTO. So a little bit of both. I remember when I was actually like quitting at Goldman, I was talking with one of the partners that I was pretty close with. And he told me he didn't really understand the business of what we were doing at Openfolio. And so that doesn't really make any sense to me. It's like, but you know, you made a good name for yourself. You can always come back. Um, and that actually really hit me well because I was like, okay, like I've just massively de-risked this, this gamble. Um, and, you know, it was also the right time for me to take a risk. I was 26, 27. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. Like I could go take a swing. And I've kind of always wanted to bet on myself and this was the most pure way to do it. Um, so, you know, well, at first I, I you know, so a little bit of backstory was when uh, the trader that I'd worked with wanted me to be a CTO. I actually first told him no and recommended a bunch of friends that I thought he should talk to because I wasn't quite ready to take that gamble. And then he talked to them and they came back to me and said, hey, come on, come be our CTO. Let's, let's do this now. And he said, all right, fine, let's go. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was a really fun opportunity. I, I, I want to work on things that matter to real people. And this was an opportunity to do that. And, you know, I, I wanted to make a bet on myself. That was a brave, very brave decision because Goldman, it's like what used to be IBM, right? You, you can't go wrong if you bought IBM in the 50s. So same thing with Goldman. Hey, you can't go wrong staying there. So that you're saying it calmly, but that took a big, that took a lot of guts to make that move. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, and it was the right move at the right time for me right yeah. now, uh, or at the time. And, you know, I, I'm really happy that I did. It forced me to learn a ton, you know, at, working at Goldman, I was sort of working on this trading group in this box, and I had to solve the problems that were sort of inside of this box. Going to a startup and building something from the ground up, I had to learn you know, a ton of breath, like in real time. And it was a, a massive amount of work, but I'm, I'm so happy that I did. And it set me up for success, you know, at Flourish. And, you know, we had a, a great time doing it. I mean, Rick, was there any... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was, I was going to ask you, hey, Rick, do you think, um, and Josh, do you think for people who either lost their job in tech, worried about losing their job in tech, who maybe didn't consider a career at Wall Street, do you think, given your experience there, Josh, that this would be a way for people to say, hey, maybe let me reinvent myself and move on to the financial world? Is, is that possible? Is that an open door? Yeah, and there's a ton of movement. Um, one of the best engineers I've ever worked with used to be an engineer at Sony working on the PlayStation 3 and like on core compilers there. There's a lot of movement, you know, 
from finance to Wall Street, from Wall Street to finance. Um, and I recommend working in financial services. I think that the closer you can get to the business, the better. Um, but it's a great opportunity to learn and grow and certainly stressful at times, depending on sort of market conditions and where you're working. But, you know, I've loved it. And I, I think that, you know, frankly, it helped me grow into the person that I am. Rick, have you found people on Blind being Wall Street curious in terms of different <laughs> opportunities? Yeah, the, there are there are quite a few technologists that are indeed Wall Street curious or um, certainly curious to, to think outside of the tech industry, right? So uh, we've seen at the beginning of 2023, a lot of these companies in the tech sector are laying off thousands, tens of thousands of people in one fell swoop. And it, it's giving some professionals some pause, right? They're thinking, gosh, this tech industry that I thought was kind of a safe haven might not be a safe haven anymore, right? So um, they're they're looking to be uh, more open, I suppose, to risk, right? Whether that's like leaving the industry or even starting their own startup with some of their friends, o almost similar to kind of Josh's experience, where you might have worked really closely with your product manager or a business stakeholder uh, that is doing something else, and and they're kind of uh, poaching some of the, the the folks that they enjoyed working with most. And uh, whether you're kind of the instigator or you're being asked to join and come along, uh, we're, we're kind of seeing all of that in spades on, on, on blind right now. You guys think with artificial intelligence really dominating the news, and it seems like it's going to be like that for a while, will there be a, a big movement of tech folks who are laid off, downsized or not, or who are just happy where they are to say, hey, let me do this AI startup. Um, and maybe it might be the financial sector, uh, Wall Street, what have you. Do, do you think, have you started seeing that or do you think that's that's going to happen? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure about AI specifically in the context of the financial industry. I, I think one thing is that there's certainly a lot of excitement towards generative AI. So like the, the, the kind of technology that we're seeing with, you know, almost like a chat or conversation based AI, uh, like open AI or, 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 or BARD. Um, but I, I think what we're more seeing on blind is professionals that are interested in kind of expanding their horizons, right? Whereas previously they set their sights on kind of cracking the, the top echelon of like Meta, Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, and Netflix, that 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 cohort. They're, they're now open to saying, oh, actually, you know, per perhaps I'm going to take a risk and bet on myself, like exactly like Josh said, in terms of working at a pre-IPO startup or working at a startup that's going to kind of quickly become a, a so-called unicorn, right? And, and and cashing in on the stock options, right? Where if I can like get it on the ground floor of something, make a huge impact because, you know, I, I look to my left and I look to my right at a startup, you might be the only engineer working on a certain product, right? And so you can kind of hit the ground running and, and, and kind of see that kind of result or impact uh, almost immediately. Uh, there's quite a lot of folks that are 
quite excited about kind of making that business impact early and, and, and kind of like getting that promotion or getting that title uh, to, to kind of go along with it. And that was a lot of my experience joining Openfolio. I was the first employee and, you know, you sort of are, it's a different trade, right? You know, when I was at Goldman, I knew that if I worked 10 hours a day, you know, 250 days a year, like I could figure out like, is this worth my time to go put this extra effort in? Like, what's the probability that I get this promotion or I get, you know, my bonus goes up by 30%. At a startup, it's it's real different, right? You're paid in equities. It's sort of lotto tickets. And the, the you know, that cost benefit analysis of should I go do this extra thing really becomes more of like an opportunity cost trade because you don't know how to value the asset that you're getting paid in really. And there's, you know, at a really small startup, there's no one else working on these things. So it's, you know, I can work on this right now and get this ball moving forward and have another thing, you know, get another swing at this tomorrow or I can go do something else. And, and you know, my strategy through all of that was really to outwork, out pivot and try to out innovate everyone. Um, and you know, working at a small startup isn't, in my experience, absolute ton of work, but you get to impact everything. And you know, the saying like, love your job and you'll never work a day in your life. I found that to be really true. You know, you're always learning because you have to learn. It's it's not an option. You're forced to learn. You have ownership of the products and technology that you're working on because you have to. There's not some other team working on this. It's it's you. And you really get to see and feel the impact of your work. And to me, that was the most motivating piece of working at a startup. It wasn't, it wasn't even so much. I mean, obviously you wanted the equity to go to the moon, but it was, I want to go do something and I want to see that it matters and I want to see that it impacts and I want to learn and I want to grow. And there it was like the pure forcing function to go do that. I mean, you're, you're two-time CTO now. You obviously got promoted along the way. Were there any kind of promotions or level ups in your career that were, you know, harder or more surprising for you as you kind of like grew in your career arc there? So my career path is it's been kind of weird because it was a lot of like creating the role like the cto role and just doing it right you know first employee at a company hired people that i knew brought them in and sort of just took on more and more because someone had to do it and i spent the time put in the effort to go learn and do and build and then it became my job and you know we were acquired and we sort of flourish started out and i think my official title was like head of flourish technology and at some point someone just started calling me the cto and i just became the cto because i'd been doing the job and i think there's always opportunities to take on things that are outside of your role and grow that way and if you can move like as a CTO, your job is to move the business forward, right? Grow the business. It's not just a technology role. It's a, it's very much a business role. And if you can find ways to do that and impact the business and the bottom line and, you know, be the person or the team that does that, like you'll get the promotion or you'll just get the new title. Um, it, again, in my case, it wasn't like a, these weren't really discrete events. It was a lot more of like a, a continuous path, but I always wanted to take on more and do more because I wanted to, grow the business. 
and there are probably going to be some engineers and technologies technologists listening that think like gosh i i might be at a huge company where i feel like i'm in an army of software engineers right my, my team is huge i feel insulated in terms of how close i am to kind of the business decisions right and they look at your career path and think gosh like you got to be hands-on you got to be embedded you got to like work literally like shoulder to shoulder with your stakeholders right and, and so you're that close and able to like make an impact and realize that so quickly and they might not feel empowered right and, and so for folks that are looking to you know become directors of engineering ctos where um, you know you have to have that kind of business acumen or that business skill do you have any advice to getting that um, experience if you feel like in your current role, you just don't have that visibility or that opportunity yet? Yeah, I think, you know, make sure that you really understand the business that you're working in. Like, and it's not just what is the product, but like, how does this product make money? And, you know, how, what is, how does this thing grow and have opinions? Um, I'd also say like, find opportunities to make a bet on yourself. And sometimes that's painful and you have to switch a role or, Sometimes that means you know jumping and going to a startup uh, where you can truly take a bet in yourself. Um, but yeah, I think it's find opportunities to sort of do more, and opportunity and good opportunities will come out of that. Um, if you can find a way to be sort of again the team that gets things done and gets things done in a way that impacts PNL, impacts growth like those are typically where you're going to see a lot of promotions come out of um, so those are good places to be and if those aren't coming up then you know try to find other places where you, you're going to have those opportunities um, but i think it really comes down to like really thinking about what the business is and really being interested in the business and if you're interested and excited about what you're doing and you're interested and excited about you know, the the business and product, then you're you're going to end up with better outcomes. So make sure you're working on something that you're interested in. I mean, during the matching process, whether that's kind of a, a job interview or even once you're at a company and you're maybe open to kind of making a internal lateral move, are, are there questions or, or, or things that you can kind of ask or, or, or do to kind of suss out whether a team or a business unit uh, is kind of on that right track in terms of like having ownership or autonomy or being close to the P&L and, and, and making that kind of clear business impact there? Yeah, I think when you're talking like in sort of the matching phase, talk with people about the business. If they're only talking about the technology that you're building and no one's talking about the business and the impact, then that's not top of mind for them. Um, like make sure that they're able to talk passionately about the way that they're impacting the business and why the technology that they're building and supporting matters. Um, like to me, that's sort of the, the key indicator. Um, the, the matching phase is complicated, right? It's like, a, it's a weird sort of process or sort of interviewing sort of not, um, but you're, you know, it's, it's, a, it really is a two way street and, Make sure that you're asking 
the questions that you would want to be asked, right? Like, how is this impacting the PL? What does how does this product fit into the bigger picture? How is this driving the business? Like, if those aren't can't be answered, then you know, maybe. You know, Josh, it's really interesting because to piggyback on what you were saying, we've had a couple of other guests similarly mention about to, to understand the business you're in, understand the goals, understand the products, the services. Do you find that within the tech sector, oftentimes people fall in love with the technology, but don't realize, okay, the goal is to make money and here's how we make money and this is how it works. Is that, does that happen kind of often? Because I've heard enough people to say about it. I wonder if there's that disconnect that goes on. I think different organizations have different cultures. Um, I know at Flourish, really from the get-go, we wanted to set the Flourish culture up to be very, very commercial. A lot of us had come from trading desks and sort of had that ingrained in us um, from prior roles. But I think that you know, throughout the industry, there are there are tons of really interesting projects and like really interesting technology and software products in business. The safer your job is, um, and you know, that's sort of. I wouldn't say that's like the reason that I've wanted to be closer to the business, but it's certainly been a nice benefit. That's such a great point because I don't think people know that enough. I've seen that for the last 25 plus years, the close, exactly what you're saying, the closer you are to the revenue, you know, the better it is for you in your career because you're part of generating revenue and that's what the businesses need to do. And that, those are the people they'll keep and, and advance within the organization, right? Yeah, definitely. Gosh, I'm, I'm curious now. You've experienced two acquisitions as a leader, as an executive. Can you give us a behind the scenes look into kind of what happens during that kind of business transition? You know, how does your work change as a CTO during or after each acquisition there? Yeah, so I've been through two acquisitions. One was Openfolio being acquired by Stonebridge, which you know, Openfolio I think was a seven person company at the time. And it was really more of like an aqua hire. Um, then, uh, Flourish being acquired, uh, by Mass Mutual was a lot more of like a true business acquisition and they both follow a pretty similar pattern. Um, but they are materially different. And I would guess that every acquisition is pretty different. I like to think of like the three phases looking back or like sort of like the dating phase, like, are we a match? And that's both from like a culture and team perspective, from a business perspective, from like a, what do you really want to do? Like as an organization perspective, because when you're like, when like someone's acquiring you, they're not just acquiring like the technology assets, at least not normally, they're acquiring a team and they're acquiring people. And those people have goals and ambitions and have a direction that they want to go. And you know, you have to make sure that that's compatible. Otherwise, like the people won't go and it'll you know, be a flop. The next phase really is like technical diligence. And that's, you know, as a technical leader, it's really an opportunity for you to talk your book and sell, like talk, talk about the people, the culture, the technology, what you've built, why it matters, why it's so great. Like, you know, it's not a time to be bashful. It's a time, time to sell. And then the last phase is really sort of the negotiation phase and that's you know the cards are on the table the the asset you know people are quantifying what the value of the asset is and you know there's both what is this business going to cost and then the negotiation of making sure that all the right people come across and you know 
these acquisitions are stressful um, and they're for good reason or like people who are sort of in the know about the acquisition or the potential acquisition and then the vast majority of people are sort of outside of the tent for a bit um, and you know, in my experience at least it can be really lonely um, you know, you're trying really hard to make sure that you get the right outcome for the business and the team but maybe your sounding boards are outside of sort of the embargoed uh, sort of folks so like you know who do you run your pitch deck by? Who are you just talking to when you're stressed out because you're you know, running spreadsheets and trying to figure out to make, how to make the numbers work and what are the right things? Um, I will give a couple of hints though, or a couple of sort of cheat sheets that I found. Um, when you're doing your technical diligence presentation, make sure it's very polished and make sure that you have the PowerPoint deck to guide the conversation. You know what you are trying to sell, make sure that you have the pitch deck ready. And if you really want to look like a pro, talk about the software licenses that you use. No one thinks about it until they're going to acquire a company and they're trying to figure out what software licenses are, are, power, are being used and powering this thing. Have all of that stuff ready um, and, and you'll crush it. Wow. You know, I, I always thought of acquisitions as kind of like a, a, a black box, right? Where like like you said, you're, there's, there's that dating phase where both parties are kind of feeling each other out and, you know, maybe not so eager to kind of share everything on the table, but it, it seems like it's more of a collaborative process than kind of the that adversarial process that, that I tend to think of. Yeah, in my experience, it has been a lot more collaborative because, you know, a private like technology company, how do you value it? How do you know all of thing you know, how do you know how to put a price tag on it like there sort of has to be that discovery um and i'm sure that's you know, again sure some acquisitions go differently um but ours were all very open transparent and honest and we wanted to make sure that it was the right fit all around and it was a smooth landing and i i think we stuck both of the landings can you walk us through the advice that you share um, with your team once you're kind of past that final step and and you can kind of share the news outside of the embargo tent like are team members usually kind of nervous are they excited like what do you do to kind of like bring them on board and and, and kind of rally the troops so to speak yeah I mean it's a bit of a sell but it's you know be open and honest about how you feel about it why are you excited about this opportunity why are you excited about you know, being acquired. And I don't think you can sort of like BS your way through it. I think you sort of have to actually be excited about it and be passionate about it. And you know, you know the team, you know what they're looking for. Let's talk about why it's a good fit and why it's the right match. Um, and, you know, tell people to go talk with each other about it. Like there's, it's change, it's stressful, right? Everyone's hearing about this now and they're like, oh my God, what does this mean? How's this going to impact me? and you know have everyone go talk to their colleagues around it how they're feeling about it ultimately the sooner you can get to like a collective read on whether or not the team's coming along like the better for you um but you know i would just say put as much like once the embargo is lifted everything should be as transparent as you can be and and, and how does your work change after each acquisition like how do you go from kind of being the senior stakeholder 
in the technology organization to potentially like having a boss again for maybe the what seems like the first time in a few years. Um, like, does your role necessarily change as a as a CTO or as a tech leader after an acquisition? It changes some, right? You have to feel out what the organizational culture is and like how how do I fit into this? To go grab a beer with some people and meet them and like make some friends. Um, but you know, at least in my experiences, it hasn't changed all that much, right? Flourish operates incredibly independently, um, and you know we are making independent decisions about the direction we want to go. Um, what actually changed the most for me was when we, when Flourish was acquired, we came across as the technology organization, but we had a lot of supporting functions that hadn't come across with us, and there was a transitional services agreement that covered, sort of, you know, still having some support from the parent company, and then us sort of building out those competencies and functions ourselves, and it was really like a good kick in the butt to like go get recruiting right now because that's the most important thing in the world is that you have you have a shot clock now you have to have all of these roles up and running and you know in a steady state inside of you know whatever the transitional period is um and it was so i sort of turned from i don't know engineering leader to technology sales person a little bit to just full-on recruiting and you know we actually didn't come across with a recruiting team, so we had to build that out. Um, and we had to go recruit recruiters. We had to go recruit a ton of engineers in like the cloud operations space. And we just put that hat on and went and hired and grew. Um, so you know, there's a lot, like there's a lot of chaos coming out of an acquisition um, because you know there's change. And you know, as a CTO, you have to manage it and ultimately like. I kind of like to think like everything's my responsibility, but not necessarily my job. Um, and in this case, you know, we, we prioritized and said recruiting is the most important thing that we can do right now. I need to go do that and just went and did it as well as I could. It's so interesting, Josh, because I would have thought with a larger parent company, they would handle all those matters. But I guess it went down to you to say, hey, I, I have to, along with my team, to start recruiting recruiters, as you said, recruiting talent. So, I mean, we, again, we operate as like a really independent subsidiary. Um, so we have a lot of these functions in-house. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we were hiring people that were compatible with the Flourish culture and that wanted to be part of Flourish. Right? We are a 60-some-odd person startup at that point. We were a 20-some-odd person startup. Um, and we needed people that wanted to be part of a fast-moving startup. And our recruiting process is really like that we've built over the years is really, really geared at finding people that want to be part of that and want to be part of, you know, and startup, want to be have a ton of ownership, want to move very quickly, want to build, create, iterate, iterate, iterate. And you know, we wanted to make sure that we preserved that. So we we kept that as close to us as we possibly could. And you know, we have a really off-market recruiting process, I will, I will say, for application developers. The last phase of our recruiting process again, for engineering is a full-day hackathon where a candidate either comes into the office or we do it over Zoom, but they work with four of our engineers for a day and build something from the ground up. And it's not something that's like work-related necessarily, but it's something that you know flexes the same muscles that they'll need during the day. And by the end of the day, we've built something together the candidate knows if they want to work with us. We know what it's like to work with the candidate. 
and we can both make a really informed decision. And like this process actually came out of the early startup days because we were terrified about making a bad hire because a bad hire, like a five person company can derail everything. Um, so we just said, how do we de-risk this? But we've kept it going with us because we found people that really want to work with us and it's worked really well for a uh, hiring process from a retention point of view. I think we've had four engineers ever leave our organization in the five years we've been doing Flourish. Um, and it's great because when a candidate joins, day one is actually day two. They, they know the people they're working with. They have a shared story. They've built something and they've worked together. Um, so, you know, we will, that was sort of like a non-negotiable for us for our recruiting process. So, you know, we very much wanted to keep that us. I, I love that window into the kind of culture on the team that you're building. You know, I mean, st taking a, a step back, how would you describe Flourish's tech culture or even workplace culture? So I think the Flourish culture is really commercial. When we're hiring people, we're hiring people who want to build businesses. We're also really humble. You know, none of us care that you were right or I was right. We care that we are right. And we care that we get to the right solutions quickly. And lastly, I'd say our team is like uncorrelated weird. It's a sort of a nod to a modern portfolio theory joke, but our team is quirky, fun, and we embrace our idiosyncrasies. You know, we're not focused on like fitting in to some culture. We're like focused on the problems that we need to solve because we're just being us. And ultimately that's leading to better decisions and better outcomes. And it's just a lot more fun to work together. Got it. And, and would you say that that's what makes Flourish stand out from kind of other financial technology, financial services companies? So, you know, we've really built Flourish as a platform for quickly launching businesses. And that was really a goal from like day one. It was, you know, we have our cash management business. We were able to use that to quickly launch a lot of things in the crypto space. And we're using that to launch you know, more things. Um, but we've really built everything to move fast and quickly launch compliant fintech businesses. Um, and I think that we do move faster than, you know, certainly than any other place I've worked. Um, and I think I've gotten that feedback from everyone who's joined us. We also very much are like a day zero company. Um, you know, this is the primary goal of every business we launch is to be profitable, right? But the secondary goal is to decrease the marginal cost of the next business. And, you know, I think that is really what makes Flourish special is come here to build businesses. Um, I remember when Openfolio was being acquired, I was asked by one of the managing uh, members of Stonebridge what I wanted to do with my career. And my answer was, I want to build a billion dollar business and I want to learn how to build a $10 billion business. And like, that's still my goal. And like, that's what's keeping me here. And I think that that's pretty common across you know, the engineering organization, really the organization as a whole, like this is an opportunity to learn and launch. No, no, I appreciate that kind of like search for the entrepreneurial spirit, even after you've like, from the outsider's perspective, you've seemingly made it already, right? Like you've clearly found product market fit. Uh, you've clearly found like a core set of customers that like truly love what you're doing. And they're able to run entire businesses and, and, and help like make incredible impact for their, their clients. It's a scale of like millions, billions of dollars. Uh, and, and still having that 
kind of like care to like, oh no, we're still going to find these like business motivated people is pretty inspiring that it's it's never changed since the early days. That's really what makes it fun. I think, you know, we want to build, launch and have, you know, these businesses that sort of carry on, but we're always motivated about the next thing. What is the next opportunity? And I think in our space, there are tons of opportunities to bring really interesting tech and financial products to independent advisors and help them you know, grow their businesses and help them better serve their clients. And it's both sort of like inspiring to me because you get to help people have better financial outcomes, but also like, I want to grow businesses and I want to learn and build businesses and like, we get to do both. It's great. Do you have any kind of like final advice for those like senior professionals, even the directors and vice presidents that are listening who are considering C-level roles or the first leadership roles or, or even starting their own startup? Yeah, I mean, my, my advice is to do it. Make it better than yourself. Okay. Um, and like, it's really empowering once you've set, decided like, I'm going to make a bet on myself. I'm going to go do something and do it. Um, you know, you're, but remember that you're there to build a business and like figure, make sure that you deeply understand what the business does. And once you sort of get you know, in the, once you have a seat at the table effectively, be it because you've moved up the ladder or gone to a tiny company uh, where you have to make decisions, like make your voice heard, make your opinion you know, heard, ask hard questions. And your job's not just to be a technologist anymore. Your job is to advance the business and you have sort of accountability for things in the technology vertical, but make sure that you're working on the right things. Make sure the right people are talking to each other so that you're solving the problem the first time and the right way. I, I love that reminder, Josh. Bet on yourself. Do something and make sure you're contributing to the business. I, I think those are kind of words of wisdom that we can all take to heart no matter your role, uh, whether you're an engineer or not, uh, whether you're on the involved in the tech industry, the financial services industry or not. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming on the show, Josh, and, and sharing that with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Josh. That's it for The Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.